Hi, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the 23rd leg of our journey through Tolkien's Middle Earth. This week, chapters 9 and 10, as we arrive in Bree, we meet Barnum and Butterbur, we come under the foul influence of the Black Riders, Frodo makes a potentially calamitous mistake under the influence of the ring, and we're introduced to a guy who may be important later. I don't know. It's possible that one of the books of this, one of the internal volumes of The Lord of the Rings will kind of be named for him. We'll get to all of that in due course. Thank you all so much for joining me. As ever, you can contribute to the conversation here in the YouTube chat, this live YouTube chat that is unfolding right now with Kim and Lady Sorka and Karen and Beck and Carla is here joining us from Portugal and Shane and Mary, who is unfortunately a little under the weather. Mary, I hope you feel better very, very soon. Or you can take part in the conversation over on Twitter using the hashtag tab again. That is T-A-B-A. G-A-I-N. I just realized before beginning this live session that I could have contracted that hashtag still further to just back again, to B-A-G-A-I-N, to began, you know, as in begins of bag end, begins, we hates it, we hates it forever. Yeah, anyway, hashtag tab again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, and I will see all of that right here in the in, in the Twitter stream as it unfolds here on the side of my screen. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and joking aside, an introduction to one of the most important characters in all of the Lord of the Rings. Not just important in terms of the narrative, but important in terms of the world building. Strider, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is one of the most significant characters in the entire story, and a character to whom we will be looking for guidance through the rest of this narrative. We're going to be looking to Aragorn as an exemplar of greatness, as an exemplar of the kind of heroic figure that Tolkien really respects. It's a very different kind of heroism than the kind of heroism we find in Frodo or the kind of heroism that we find in Samwise Gamgee, but it is an archetypal medieval kind of heroism. And well, there's a lot to discuss as we move forward. Before we get to that, though, we should really look at some geography because this is the point in the story in which Tolkien's firm hold on his internal geography is kind of taken for granted. And we had a few moments of this back in the pages of The Hobbit. And arguably, for those of you who are reading The Lord of the Rings for the first or even the second time, it can already feel as though we're a little disengaged from the actual geography of the landscape, which is of vital importance. The colossal distances that will be covered in the course of this book are sometimes blurred by the narrative. We don't spend a great deal of time describing, and then they walked for another day, and then another day, and then another day. I am, of course, accepting the first part of The Two Towers, in which we do literally that for 40 pages, but We'll get to that in a few months' time. So what I wanted to do to begin is to take a look at some of the original maps that were drawn by Tolkien himself. I guess one original map that was drawn by Tolkien himself. This is Tolkien's Middle-earth. This is a cleaned-up version of the map that he drew in order to compile his sense of the world. And there are a couple of things that I want to point out here because there are a couple of words that are introduced in this chapter, or in these chapters, I should say, that haven't occurred before. And we want to have a firm sense of what those words mean. The most important, I would argue, is Eriador. That you can see here. I don't know if my little mouse cursor is actually large enough to show up on the screen here, but all of these slides will be available in a downloadable packet. You can check the show notes of the podcast version of this live session, and there you'll be able to find all of the slides. But we can see Eriador here on the western half of the map. 
Eriador is all that land between the Misty Mountains, which run vertically here down the middle of the map, and the Blue Mountains, the Eridluan, which kind of curve around the coast here on the western edge. So all of this, the Lost Kingdom of Arnor, uh, Rivendell included, the Shire, all of this is Eriador. So when Strider refers to Eriador, this is what he means. We can see here Mirkwood. We have the Lonely Mountain here just to the east and the Iron Hills beyond where Dian came from in order to save Thorin at the Battle of Five Armies. Far to the south, of course, we can see Mordor ringed here by the Ede Lithui, the Ash Mountains. We have Gondor here in the south around the Bay of Balfalus and Rohan just to the north. This is pretty much our setup here. This, I know, is a little difficult to see. So we're going to move from Tolkien's original map of Middle-earth to one of the maps that was drawn for the original version of The Lord of the Rings by a fellow named Stephen Raw. This is obviously a little more complex, a little harder to read, mostly because everything in Tolkien's world has five names. And apparently we wanted to include all of them on this map. So here we can see Eriador. Er 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 kind of curving through the middle here. Again, all of this, pretty much everything that you can see on this map bounded by the mountains, by the Edelman here and by the Misty Mountains on the right-hand side, all of this is Eriador. Right in the middle here, you can see the Shire. You'll notice that the, the bounds of the Shire are not very clearly defined, except on the eastern side, where they are defined by the course of the Brandywine, by the Brandywine, as the hobbits call it. Here you can see the Brandywine Bridge, which we're not going to use in the course of this story. So Frodo and Sam and Mary traveled, uh, excuse me, Frodo and Sam and Pippin traveled from Hobbiton across the Shire through the Old Forest, which you can see here, through the Barrow Downs, and then north up the Greenway into Bree. That's where we begin our story this time around. One quick geographical note, I suppose, here. In the course of this chapter, Strider will claim that Weathertop lies halfway between Bree and Rivendell. You can see from the map that that is, in fact, not at all true. Weathertop lies halfway between Bree and the last bridge, but of course the last bridge is not the entrance to Rivendell. On the other side of the last bridge, we find here the Trollshaws, which is where Bilbo and the dwarves had their encounter with the three trolls back in The Hobbits. And in the course of this story, we shall revisit that site. Rivendell here is all the way on the side, just past the ford of the, uh, the, the ford of Brennan, all the way in the shadow of the Misty Mountains. So this is the course of our journey here. We'll get, of course, to all of that. Before we move on, though, I did want to show you all, let me see if I can call this up here, because this is fantastic. If you haven't yet seen lotrproject.com, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's an interactive map of Tolkien's Middle Earth. And it's very elegant, as you can see, very easy to read, as you can see. We can see Hobbiton here, almost in the middle of the map. We can see the, the Shire coming out, the Brandywine curving north. We can see the Old Forest here. We can infer the presence of the House of Tom Bombadil. We've got the Barrowdowns, we've got Bree, we've got the Midgewater Marshes, and moving on to Amundsul, also known as Weathertop. We'll get to all of that within the next couple of weeks, actually within the next week, I suppose. Um, one of the best things about lotrproject.com is that you can overlay certain paths. So if you go over here to the right, you can click the Paths option and select the path of Thorin and company. And there you can see Thorin and company's entire journey. If I zoom out a little bit, you can see all the way from Hobbiton, 
now says Thorin and company right in the middle of the screen, and I don't know if I can get rid of that. I guess I can't. It doesn't matter. But it comes all the way from Hobbiton via the road, crucially, to Bree, all the way past Weathertop to the uh, to the, the encounter with the trolls near the last bridge, the Ford of Brennan to Rivendell, all the way north to the Eagle's Eyrie, down across the Anduin on this side, through Mirkwood, all the way to the Elven King's Halls, and thence to Erebor. This is the journey that Bilbo and the dwarves take in the pages of The Hobbit. And, I mean, avert your eyes for a moment. If you don't want some very minor spoilers, I will try to keep our focus here on, on the western side of the Misty Mountains. But we can also overlay this with the... Um, with the route taken by Frodo and Sam. And you can see that Frodo and Sam have deviated from Bilbo's route already. They headed south, cut through uh, cut through the forest, cut through Farmer Maggot's fields, cut through the old forest, out to Bree, and will then continue east, not crucially by the road. We'll get to all of that next time here on There and Back Again. So all of this is to say that uh, you should definitely check out lotrproject.com, particularly if you have an interest in cartography. They also have fantastic timelines and a brilliant analysis of the text itself. You can really go into some deep statistics about the, the actual text of The Lord of the Rings, which is just pretty great. So I urge you all to... Uh, to check that out. And if there are any places on the map that seem interesting, just Google them. You'll find things out. There's a lot to discover. Let me return then from my shared screen here and come back to you and catch up with the YouTube chat. Um, Becca Eller asks, can I please have the documentary where Alistair gives us a tour of Middle Earth following the fellowship? I should say that the uh, estimable Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, has been doing a series over on Twitch in which he plays Lotro, the Lord of the Rings online uh, multiplayer online role-playing game which is a great game, by the way. If you've never played it, if you've never been into that kind of game, it's super easy to jump into and just explore. I mean, the game mechanics can be a little intimidating, but if you've played World of Warcraft or you've played any kind of role-playing game, you should be able to pick them up pretty trivially. It's also free to play unless you want to buy more character slots or play certain classes and things like that. But Corey Olson has, in the course of his, I think it's called Exploring the Lord of the Rings series, has been basically conducting field trips in the game world through Eriador. It's been pretty great. Uh, I haven't been able to keep up with all of them, and God knows I'm, I'm woefully behind as of this recording, but it's a really great series in which you can see how the producers at Turbine, previously called Turbine, I think they just changed their name, but the people who produce the video game have and, and deeply adapted Tolkien's world. If you ever want to know what, it, what Hobbiton actually looks like, what Bag End actually looks like, what Mickle Delving looks like, or what the Prancing Pony and Bree looks like, you can actually go and see these things in the game world. So I can't recommend that series highly enough. You can find that just by Googling for Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, a very fine fellow indeed. Lady Sorka says, I've been doing my reading this time by listening to the unabridged audiobooks. It's taking a while. Yes, the audiobook experience of The Lord of the Rings is a really interesting one. I love the audiobooks, but it does feel different. It does. I think it is because for all of his connections to the oral tradition, I think that Tolkien was primarily a writer. And there are things that are evident from the pages of The Lord of the Rings that are somewhat occluded if those things are read aloud. There are certain inferences and subtleties that aren't always communicated in the performed text. The opposite is true, of course, when we get to the songs and the poems. The songs and the poems are absolutely supposed to be read aloud. And the one piece of advice that I give to everyone who is trying The Lord of the Rings for the first time is, when you get to a poem, stop and read that thing aloud, because it will make so much more sense to you. You will feel it in a way that it is impossible, on the, in, in a way that is impossible on the page. So I can completely understand that. It works, but 
For me, the core, the heart of the Lord of the Rings will always be the text on the page. I'm gesturing emphatically here to the book that is actually laying open on my desk right here beside me because I don't know. I just like having it close, you guys. It's just, it's, it's a comfort to me in these difficult times. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth is confessing that she is behind on her reading, but don't worry about that. I'll talk to you after class. <laughs> Karen says, interesting to compare the explicit discussions of distance with the narrative evocation of distance. What is visible from where? What characters experience? How the pace changes during the slog to Mordor? This is very true and is, I think, representative not just of the internal emotional content of the narrative, the way that characters are worn down by their long journey, but also by the quality of the landscape around them. Certainly, we're not going to demarcate our passage from the West into the wild within the pages of The Lord of the Rings as starkly as we did back in The Hobbit. The wild in The Lord of the Rings isn't as wild as it used to be. And that makes a lot of sense because we were seeing that from a much more hobbitish perspective. By the time we get into the wild on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains, we're going to be more capable. We're going to simply have more experience. Frodo arguably already has incalculably more experience than Bilbo had by the time that he crossed the Misty Mountains. But there is still a distinction to be drawn between the Shire, you know, the west, all of Eriador, the passage through Bree and onward to Amonsol, to Weathertop, to, to Rivendell, ultimately, then crossing the Misty Mountains and onward and onward and onward. And we do get, I think, a very different texture. There are passages when we get to Rohan later in the book, which are absolutely and brilliantly evocative of these rolling plains with a distant horizon, mountains just carving into the sky off there in the distance and the clouds above. They're, they're wildly evocative and just beautifully written. And again, we must remember that Tolkien was a landscape painter. And when we get these descriptions of landscapes, oftentimes he is viewing them as a painter would. He gives us really luminous descriptions, particularly when we are beholding things in the, the dim distance there. So do pay attention to that as we move forward. But I think you're right. Right. We definitely get, there is a stark distance, a stark difference, excuse me, a distinction between the direct accounts, the kind of literal accounts that we get of the miles traveled or the distances between places and the experience of that thing. And that, I think, is very true to real life. In fact, let me, uh, let me do something that I rarely do and go back to a previous slide because I want to emphasize something here. If I can call up this slide again, which I'm having some trouble with, that's fine. It's all good, you guys. Here we go. Okay, so if I swing back to the first map that we saw here, we were talking about the Nazgul. We were talking about the Nazgul hunting the ring, hunting Baggins. After Gollum is taken by, uh, by Sauron and, and gives up the name Baggins and the word Shire, we were talking about the Nazgul going out into the world to try and find this place, the, the Black Riders, the ring race here. And we talked about how strange it seems that, that it's taken them at least 50 years. It's taken them a good long while to track down the Shire. But look at the distances involved. Look how far that is from the shadows of Mordor all the way up through Rohan, through Gondor, all the way north and presumably east and south too. I mean, they had no idea where this place was. This is a huge, a colossal distance. You can see here from the little, uh, from the little mile marker key that we have that it is perhaps, what, 1,200, maybe 1,500 miles from Mordor to the Shire. That's an incalculable distance in these times, in this kind of, of world, in this kind of landscape. Without knowing where you're going, it could easily take a lifetime 
and you may never find where you're going. So that I think gives us a sense of the vast scale of Tolkien's geography and the all but impossible tasks that lay before the Nazgul. More on them, by the way, in this reading. With all of that said, let's get in to our actual discussion this time. And we begin with our introduction to Bree. Bree was the chief village of the Breeland, a small inhabited region like an island in the empty lands round about. Besides Bree itself, there was Staddle on the other side of the hill, Combe in a deep valley a little further eastward, and Arket on the edge of the Chetwood. Lying around Bree Hill and the villages was a small country of fields and tamed woodland only a few miles broad. The men of Bree were brown-haired, broad and rather short, cheerful and independent. They belonged to nobody but themselves, but they were more friendly and familiar with hobbits, dwarves, elves, and other inhabitants of the world about them than was or is usual with big people. According to their own tales, they were the original inhabitants and were the descendants of the first men that ever wandered into the west of the Middle World. Few had survived the turmoils of the Elder Days, but when the kings returned again over the Great Sea, they had found the Bremen still there, and they were still there now when the memory of the old kings had faded into the grass. In those days, no other man had settled dwellings so far west or within a hundred leagues of the Shire, but in the wild lands beyond Bree there were mysterious wanderers. The Bree folk called them rangers and knew nothing of their origin. They were taller and darker than the men of Bree, and were believed to have strange powers of sight and hearing, and to understand the languages of beasts and birds. They roamed at will southwards and eastwards, even as far as the Misty Mountains, but they were now few and rarely seen. When they appeared, they brought news from afar and told strange, forgotten tales which were eagerly listened to, but the Bree folk did not make friends with them. So we get our introduction to Bree, on the first hand, uh, on one hand, and also our introduction to the rangers on the other. So Bree is a human community, a community of men. Breeland, in general, is a small community of men. A couple of scattered villages, some farms, some fields, agrarian culture. This is basically the human equivalent of the Shire. They are more open than the Shire, but they are more sequestered than other human communities and kingdoms that we will see later in the story. They are a remnant of the first man who came into the West of the Middle World. So they are, they are oldest in a sense, but they are also, as we see here, not direct descendants. The Rangers are the direct descendants of the Numenorean kings. The Rangers are what men are at their greatest. The folk of Bree have dwindled, and we may speculate, possibly even intermarried. They have become smaller in stature. They have become broad and rather short, cheerful and independent. But what does that remind us of? Who does that sound like? That sounds an awful lot like hobbits. And here we see, I think, Tolkien masterfully creating a threshold point for us in our transition from the Shire, which is comfortable and safe and hobbit-like into the wider world. Bree performs a, a fascinating and vital function for Frodo and the other hobbits as we are journeying eastward. It also acts as a point of intersection between the safe and mundane hobbit world and the wider world. Here we get our introduction to the rangers. The rangers are fascinating. 
in terms of the development of the Lord of the Rings, because the Rangers were not always what they turned into. The Rangers were not always the last survivors of the fallen kingdom of Arnor. They were not always this, this nomadic group of people that, that traveled throughout Eriador and beyond. There are Rangers further south too, but the Rangers of the north travel throughout Eriador homeless and rootless, waiting for the day that their kingdom can be returned, waiting for the day that their king returns. They are of true Numenorean descent. They come from the oldest line of, of heroic kings that we have in Middle-earth. They are great men, capital G, capital M. But they weren't always. If you delve into the history of the Lord of the Rings, one of the most curious and fascinating things that you will discover is that Strider was not originally a man. Strider was not originally called Strider crucially. But the rangers were like a vigilante police force traveling Eriador fighting monsters and slaying, well, I was going to say slaying dragons, metaphorically slaying dragons. There are no dragons to slay in Eriador, not at least until you get all the way west into the Blue Mountains. But they would, they would fight the good fight and protect the civilized lands and do the whole thing. But it felt more like an occupation than any kind of cultural identity. The original ranger in the first versions of the Lord of the Rings was in fact a hobbit, a hobbit named Trotter. And he was called Trotter because he would clip-clop around the countryside wearing clogs, wearing wooden shoes. That was the figure who was supposed to accompany Frodo and the other hobbits on their journey eastward. This is a good choice, I think, to replace the somewhat comedic Trotter with Aragorn, with Aragorn, son of Arathorn. This is a bold attempt, an almost entirely successful attempt, to reframe Frodo's journey, to suddenly and starkly elevate Frodo's journey into a much more mythic register. I say almost comprehensively successful because I think that there is a certain tendency in some readers, I think, to imprint on Aragorn. It feels as though at this point, the story kind of becomes Aragorn's story, and Frodo is relegated to a, a bit part in this unfolding narrative. That I don't think is actually supported by the text. This is Frodo's story, start to finish. But Aragorn is such a vibrant and powerful figure, such a looming presence in the story, that it is very easy to attach to him. Also, of course, we must recognize in the shadow of Tolkien's work, that Aragorn is a much more conventional fantasy hero. He's the long-lost heir with the broken sword and the grudge. He's the guy who's been out there doing it. Aragorn, by this point, by the time that we are introduced to him, and minor spoilers, I guess, for, for explanations that we'll get later, but none of this is important. None of this is in any way you know, relevant to the proceedings, because by the end of tonight's reading, we've already kind of familiarized ourselves with, with Strider, with Aragorn, who I'm just going to call Aragorn, even though, the, even though the hobbits refer to him as Strider throughout. That is, of course, a very important distinction, but we'll talk about that when it becomes a little more relevant. By the end of this reading, we get to know Aragorn pretty well. We can understand at least a lot about who he is, if not yet everything. And what we don't yet know, we'll learn within the next few chapters. So none of this is major spoilers. But when we meet Strider in Bree, he is 87 years old. The men of Numenorean descent live long lives. He is right now approaching his prime. He is absolutely ready. He is, I suppose, 
mid thirties, maybe in, in, you know, our frame of reference, he is ready to do the thing. He has been training and, and studying and fighting for all his long life. He has served with men in Rohan. He has served with men in Gondor. He has fought and journeyed and now is here. Now as an emissary of Gandalf, he is looking out for Frodo. That is crucial because one of the things that that does is, as I say, elevate Frodo's journey into a much more, a much more historically mythic register. That is not to say that we were lacking in, in, you know, mythic import and gravitas previously. We have the one ring, you know, we have the most prized artifact of the enemy and we're going to destroy it. If destroy it, we can. This is a hopeless quest with, with danger behind and dread threat looming ahead. This is already pretty epic, but by transitioning away from a strictly Hobbit frame of reference into a much broader I don't know, free people's children of Iluvatar kind of frame of reference, we're able to we're able to see Frodo's quest more clearly because it is somewhat diminished by the addition of all of this context. You know, it becomes both less important and much, much more important. And I love the way that Tolkien manages to navigate this in two short chapters right here in Brie. Let me catch up with the YouTube chat here. Becca Eller says, I want Trotter to have his own story now. Jack, oh, let me see. Um, as I scroll back. Oh, Alan says, how many Rangers are there? Do we know? Uh, Jackie says, not many left. 38-ish are mustered toward the end of the series. Yes, that is... Um, those are the Rangers who can travel south on short notice, so there may be more, but if there are more than maybe... Uh, I would put the upper limit around maybe a couple of hundred. I can't imagine there being any more than that. Even if we include, you know, women and children, I, I don't think there are any more than that, which makes a lot of sense later in the story too. Yeah. Um, let me see. Lady Sarka asks, I've always wondered if the men of Bree got surnames from hobbits or if hobbits got surnames from the men of Bree because the only, uh, the only two groups in Middle Earth that seem to have surnames. Yes. Remember when we talked about the hobbits coming into the Shire back in the prefatory material to the Lord of the Rings, and we described these three tribes of hobbits coming west, the Stores, the Fallowhides, and the... I'm blanking. That's a terrible thing. I can't believe I'm blanking on the third tribe of hobbits. Someone is going to shout this out in the YouTube chat, and I'm going to be mortally embarrassed, as I should be, as I should be. Anyway, three tribes of hobbits coming west. As I said, it seems to me possible that the menfolk of Brie are not entirely menfolk. It seems to me possible that certainly there is a cultural osmosis happening here. And that's not just about surnames and about beer and about taverns. It's much more broad than that. Barlaman Butterbur, who I adore and who I hope is beloved by everyone listening to my voice right now, Barlaman Butterbur will later say, he will, he will cast suspicion both east and west. He will be suspicious of the Shire in exactly the same way as the Shire folk are suspicious of the Brelanders. This is a common and and shared kind of insular perspective. They they are they are suspicious of those from outside of those outlandish folk. So there definitely is a connection, but that connection is curious. Yes. Oh, Jackie Boatman says I don't remember the other one, so it won't be me. I'm glad we'll just leave this as a mystery. This is left as an exercise for the reader. The stores, the fallowhides, and the other ones. Someone's going to look it up. The Harfoots. Thank you, Alan. The Harfoots. There we go. Um, Shane asks, do Frodo and Aragorn connect so well because they're, they're, they are relatively in the same stage of life? Yes, I think there is something to that. Though, well, this is one of the things that I want to watch. Not so much in this week's reading, certainly by the time we get to Weathertop and then when we get to Rivendell, I definitely want to pay attention to the connection between Aragorn and Frodo and the way in which these two characters 
reflect each other. They are not similar in very many ways, but their oppositions are fascinating and, of course, representative of the oppositions in the cultures of hobbits and of men or of the Dunedain. Yes, yes. Um, let me see. Karen says, Alistair, do you know at what point in JRTT's revision, Gandalf's early mention of Aragorn was inserted back when he was talking to Frodo before he left home? I don't, actually. Um, what happened when Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings was simply that he would begin, start writing, just start drafting the manuscript, not knowing where the story would take him. He then eventually faltered and went back to the beginning and would, in some stage, in some senses, rewrite, but in other senses, you know, completely throw out and begin over the story. So the, the, I can recommend, I believe it's called The Return of the Shadow. It is perhaps the, gosh, seventh or eighth volume of the history of Middle-earth. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, just start at the beginning of, of Christopher Tolkien's History of Middle-earth series. It is fascinating. He includes pretty much every word that Tolkien wrote, every revision, and tracks the changes really rather beautifully, which was no simple task because it's not as though he had, you know, version control in his copy of Microsoft Word. These were scattered pages in different chests and drawers in different houses in different towns. Christopher Tolkien managed to collate all of them, including all of his father's letters, and compose a beautiful and immaculately researched history of the text itself. So if you're fascinated by that, definitely go back and check that out. So I don't, I'm afraid, know exactly when that happened. All right. Let's jump in and uh, keep moving, I guess. He said jump in because honestly, I'd forgotten that I covered the first slide already. You guys, this is a little scattered. Today I'm half an hour in and we're only technically two slides in. Let's do this thing. It was dark, and white stars were shining when Frodo and his companions came at last to the Greenway crossing and drew near the village. They came to the west gate and found it shut. Beyond it, there was a man sitting. He jumped up and fetched a lantern and looked over the gate at them in surprise. What do you want, and where do you come from? He asked gruffly. We're making for the inn here, answered Frodo. We are journeying east and cannot go further tonight. Hobbits? Four hobbits? And what's more out of the shire by their talk, said the gatekeeper, softly as if speaking to himself. He stared at them darkly for a moment and then opened the gate and let them ride through. We don't often see Shire folk riding on the road at night, he went on, as they halted a moment by his door. You'll pardon my wondering what business takes you east of Bree. What may your names be, might I ask? Our names and our business are our own, and this does not seem a good place to discuss them, said Frodo, not liking the look of the man or the tone of his voice. Your business is your own, no doubt, said the man, but it's my business to ask questions after nightfall. We are hobbits from Buckland, and we have a fancy to travel and to stay at the inn here, put in Mary. I am Mr. Brandybuck. Is that enough for you? The Bree folk used to be fair-spoken to travelers, or so I've heard. All right, all right, said the man. I meant no offense. But you'll find maybe that more folk than old Harry at the gate will be asking you questions. There's queer folk about. If you go on to the pony, you'll find you're not the only guests. One of the things that I want to track as we move particularly through these two chapters, is the way in which the established social hierarchy of the Shire crashes into the unfamiliar and presumably more, <laughs> more quasi-feudalistic culture of Brie. The social hierarchy of Brie seems to be very different, certainly less idealized than the social hierarchy presented to us in the Shire. Again, not idealized in any kind of absolute political sense. I'm not sure really that I would want to live in the Shire too, but at least this is a clash of cultures that lends an interesting perspective on the roles of the hobbits. Frodo here responds to Harry the Gate Guard as a nobleman, as a gentle hobbit, he has an assumed natural superiority. He's not intimidated by this gate guard, by this lower class man. 
in his experience, people who, car, who guard gates are generally going to, you know, genuflect as he rides past. Okay, that's exaggerating it a little bit, but they will at least show him a due respect. And then when Mary introduces himself, he introduces himself vitally as Mr. Brandybuck. And we will get an echo of that when we're introduced to Barnum and Butterbur in just a few pages. No matter how many times I read, says Shane, this part and the shadow jumping the hedge is always creepy and I can't remember how it works out. Jackie Boatman says, Mary's so well-spoken and assertive. Isn't Mary great? I have to, I have to confess, paying very close attention to Mary as we're reading these chapters, I find myself liking him more than I ever have before. He's just a fantastic character, bold and strong and assertive. Bilbo would be very, very proud. Let's, um, <laughs> good, good. So already, as we arrive at Brie, we've had our brief history, which of course brings to mind the brief account of, of, the brandy box that we got after we had crossed the ferry. Do you remember that that very brief transition there where we're, we're fleeing from the Black Riders, we're fleeing from danger into danger, we cross the ferry, and then the narrator breaks and tells us the entire history of Buckland, tells us why it was formed, or I guess not actually why it was formed, but tells us at least how it was formed and how it continues to persist to this day. That's an odd choice in the narrative at this moment, including the the context for Brie right at the start of the chapter, feels a little more natural because it feels as though we're getting an introduction to not just a new place, but a new phase of the story. We have crossed a major threshold. And while I said that the thresholds in The Lord of the Rings are less strictly demarcated than the thresholds in The Hobbit, where we were able to pretty tightly define the moments at which Bilbo is transformed by his experience. We don't get quite that, that tight focus in The Lord of the Rings, not least of all because we're dealing with so many more active and present characters than we were in The Hobbit. Um, but while those thresholds in the, pages of the Lord, in the pages of The Lord of the Rings excuse me, are somewhat less defined, they are just as numerous. How many thresholds have we crossed now since leaving Hobbiton? Well, the encounter with the Black Riders, we transitioned into the realm of fairy with Gildor and the elves. We transitioned back into the company of Farmer Maggot. We literally crossed the Baranduin. We arrived at Crick Hollow at Brandy Hall. Then we pushed on forward. We crossed the hedge into the old forest. We almost succumbed to Old Man Willow and were taken again into the realm of fairy in the form of the house of Tom Bombadil. We left that and re-emerged into the sunlit natural world, only to fall once more back into fairy in the Barrow Downs. We emerge from the Barrow Downs and we reach the road, the road here being one of the key markers of civilization, though the reason that the Greenway is referred to as the Greenway is that it has all but fallen into disuse. It is no longer paved. It is no longer a, a clean and pleasant path because it is overgrown with grass, thus the Greenway. Okay, when we arrive at Bree, though, we get an immediate sense that things are not right. Everything that we've heard so far, even from Tom Bombadil, suggests that Bree is going to be friendly and is going to be welcoming and is most importantly, most crucially, going to be safe. But perhaps it is not that. The immediate suspicion of Harry at the gate suggests that things are stirring in the shadows, things are stirring in the darkness, and we will learn later, of course, that they are. Yeah. And Jackie says, this is what happens when you don't just follow the road. Yes, it's true. And Shane confirms, and they even missed the best beer in the East Farthing. It's been a pretty disastrous journey for the Hobbits so far. I mean, hmm. 
if you count the two encounters with the Black Riders, if we could even count the three encounters with the Black Riders, because if Frodo had originally gone down to Bagshot Row to find out what the conversation was about between uh, the gaffer and the Black Rider, that would have been the end of the story. Two, if we count those three encounters punctuated by Frodo's choice to leave suddenly and not go and find out what was happening uh, on Bagshot Row, the random chance that forced the Black Rider to move on right before Frodo was about to put on the ring, the intercession of Gildor and the other elves, the rescue by Tom Bombadil, Farmer Maggot's kindness taking them to the, the ferry, we could even count that. And then, of course, Tom Bombadil's rescue in the Baradans. I count six points already in which Frodo's journey could have come to an unceremonious end. Six points already in the narrative at which Frodo could simply have been killed outright. That feels like a lot. That feels like a lot for a book that really hasn't been running that long. But then you have the luck of the hobbits. Um, so we get this suspicion that there are other folks in Bree, other folks that are perhaps even stranger than four hobbits riding east out of the Shire. And then we move into the Prancing Pony itself. They led their ponies under the arch, and leaving them standing in the yard, they climbed up the steps. Frodo went forward and nearly bumped into a short, fat man with a bald head and a red face. He had a white apron on and was bustling out of one door and in through another, carrying a tray laden with full mugs. Can we, began Master Frodo, half a minute, if you please, shouted the man over his shoulder and vanished into a babble of voices and a cloud of smoke. In a moment, he was out again, wiping his hands on his apron. Good evening, little master, he said, bending down. What may you be wanting? Beds for four and stabling for five ponies, if that can be managed. Are you Mr. Butterbur? That's right. Barnyman is my name. Barnyman Butterbur at your service. You're from the Shire, eh? He said, and then suddenly he clapped his hand to his forehead as if trying to remember something. Hobbits, he cried. Now what does that remind me of? Might I ask your name, sirs? Mr. Took and Mr. Brandybuck, said Frodo, and this is Sam Gamgee. My name is Underhill. There now, said Mr. Butterbur, snapping his fingers. It's gone again, but it'll come back when I have time to think I'm run off my feet, but I'll see what I can do for you. We don't often get a party out of the Shire nowadays, and I should be sorry not to make you welcome. But there is such a crowd already in the house tonight, as there hasn't been for long enough. It never rains, but it pours, we say in Bree. It never rains, but it pours. Probably not a Breland saying. Probably not exclusively a Breland saying, at least. I want to focus, because we're going to get the opportunity to talk about the excellence of Barlam and Butterbur and the Prancing Pony in just a few minutes. I want to focus here on the names that Frodo gives. This calls back to our introduction right there at the gate. Mr. Took and Mr. Brandybuck, and this is Sam Gamgee. My name is Underhill. Mr. Took and Mr. Brandybuck and Sam Gamgee. That's the distinction between classes in the Shire. Sam is given by his first name in a way that Merry and Pippin are not. Their family names are important. Sam's family name, much less important. Then my name is Underhill. Here, Frodo is adopting the, the pseudonym that has <laughs> kind of accompanied him out of the Shire, a pseudonym that was apparently in place prior to Gandalf's leaving, because Gandalf will, ad or will indirectly address Frodo by the name Underhill later in the chapter. Alan asks, why is Butterbur's memory so bad? Well, this is a question, <laughs> Jackie jokes pipeweed, which I like quite a lot. Um, I don't think it is that. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that there is a presence in the Prancing Pony. We're going to discuss this explicitly later when Strider talks about why the Nazgul, why the, the Black Riders will not attack the Prancing Pony by night, because light and joy and conviviality drive out the shadow. 
I think that Barnum and Butterbur is less under the influence of the black writers because he is Barnum and Butterbur and because he is the mine host here at the Prancing Pony, because he is surrounded by light and joy and energy and companionship. This is, in many ways, the antithesis of what the black writers spread across the landscape. We'll pull back to that later, yes. Um, Princess Ostrich says, rather intriguingly, I just learned that there's a Hobbit house and Middle-earth museum quite near to where we normally go hiking, and my mind was thoroughly blown. Princess Ostrich, where is that? I definitely want to check that out. That's amazing. Yes. Good. Okay. So that was our introduction to Barlaman Butterbur, but we have a much more, well, you know, I don't want to say important, but at least narratively significant introduction, and it comes just a little later. Suddenly, Frodo noticed that a strange-looking, weather-beaten man sitting in the shadows near the wall was also listening intently to the Hobbit talk. He had a tall tankard in front of him and was smoking a long-stemmed pipe curiously carved. His legs were stretched out before him, showing high boots of supple leather that fitted him well, but had seen much wear and were now caked with mud. A travel-stained cloak of heavy, dark green cloth was drawn close about him, and in spite of the heat of the room, he wore a hood that overshadowed his face. But the gleam of his eyes could be seen as he watched the Hobbits. Who's that? Frodo asked when he got a chance to whisper to Mr. Butterbur. I don't think you introduced him. Him? said the landlord in an answering whisper, cocking an eye without turning his head. I don't rightly know. He's one of the wandering folk. Rangers, we call them. He seldom talks. Not but when he can tell a rare tale when he has the mind. He disappears for a month or a year and then he pops up again. He was in and out pretty often last spring, but I haven't seen him about lately. What his right name is, I've never heard, but he's known round here as Strider. Goes about at a great pace on his long shanks, though he don't tell nobody what cause he has to hurry, but there's no accounting for East and West, as we say in Bree, meaning the Rangers and the Shire folk, begging your pardon. Funny you should ask about him. But at that moment, Mr. Butterworth was called away by a demand for more ale, and his last remark remained unexplained. Frodo found that Strider was now looking at him. Excuse me, Frodo found that Strider was now looking at him, as if he had heard or guessed all that had been said. Presently, with a wave of his hand and a nod, he invited Frodo to come over and sit by him. As Frodo drew near, he threw back his hood, showing a shaggy head of dark hair flecked with grey, and in a pale, stern face, a pair of keen, grey eyes. I don't often reference the Lord of the Rings movies in terms of character description, because honestly, I read the Lord of the Rings a lot before I ever saw the Peter Jackson adaptations. One of the most successful character introductions for me in the movies, though, is Strider. For me personally, Viggo Mortensen sitting at the table with the long-stemmed pipe curiously carved and the hood over his face, that, that is perfect. That is exactly what I envisioned for Strider. And note, too, the difference that we get here between our previous encounter with hooded figures and this encounter with hooded figures. We have questioned whether or not the black riders beneath their cloaks are invisible because nothing can be seen of them. But here, even under his cloak, Aragorn's eyes gleam. They are the gleam in the gloom, as Tolkien is so fond of saying. Yeah. Viggo Mortensen killed it, said Jackie Bowman. I am absolutely in agreement with you right there. Yes. 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 Uh, <laughs> talking about uh, talking about Barlam and Butterbur's uh, uh, faulty memory, uh, Jackie says, Butterbur's the busiest guy in Bree, and Alan replies, I guess, but if Gandalf tells you to do something, you better damn well do it. It has been a time, though. And I wonder to what degree 
Because, of course, I was talking about, about Marlon Butterbur under the influence of the Black writers and, and the, the shadow that has fallen over Brie. But I wonder to what degree Gandalf is possessed of a similar kind of shadow. His hold on the imaginations of the hobbits in the Shire is fleeting, in a sense. That is to say that the reality of Gandalf is very quickly and, and routinely supplanted by the myth of Gandalf. People tell stories about Gandalf in the Shire, but they don't really talk about him. They don't really talk about the wizard himself, even when he is a frequent visitor to the Shire long before he he disappears. Um, so I think that there is an element in which kind of raucous mundanity drives out thought of stranger things. I think there is a sense in which living one's life, being connected to the moment, being connected to the present in the way that Barnum and Butterbur is, makes us less, less connected to more mythic stories in a strange way. Um, yeah, it's possible. Uh, Alan says, I love in the movie when he takes a pull in his pipe and his face lights up ever so much. It's perfect. Yeah, you guys, we can we can rhapsodize about Viggo Mortensen as, as, as Aragorn when we get to the movies in like a year and a half. We're definitely going to talk a lot about that performance because I, I generally love the performances in the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, pretty much the casting is excellent throughout. And some of the casting is excellent in very surprising and unexpected ways. But for me, Viggo Mortensen is absolute A-grade top-tier performance in, in terms of those movies. Yeah. And now I just want to go and watch those movies again, you guys. That might be the rest of my afternoon. Um, okay. Before we move on, though, I want to put that slide back up so that we can look a little more clearly at Barlaman Butterbur's words. Goes about at a great pace on his long shanks, though he didn't tell nobody what cause he has to hurry. So we have this sense that, that Strider comes and goes as he pleases and isn't connected. This echoes the description that we got right at the beginning of the chapter, what was on that very first slide, that the rangers will come into town and they will, they will interact with the people of Bree and they will tell great tales, but we do not make friends of them. We do not associate with them because they are not like us. And this is an experience that we basically effectively don't get in the Shire. Big people rarely come into the Shire, if ever come into the Shire. Gandalf comes along and causes a sensation. Dwarves from time to time will travel through the Shire, between the Misty Mountains, the Lonely Mountain, the East in general, and the Blue Mountains in the West. Elves will travel, but they're hardly ever seen. They're so rarely seen, in fact, that people like Ted Sandyman can disbelieve in them entirely, which is, well, perhaps a little foolish. But this town, Bree and Breland in general, is a very different kind of place. It is much less secluded than the Shire is. And that integration comes with benefits, the telling of stories, the, the, the energy that is present here in the Prancing Pony, but also it comes with a cost, which is danger, which is uncertainty, which is distrust but not that much more distrust than the Shire. There's no accounting for East and West, as we say in Brie, meaning the Rangers and the Shire folk begging your pardon. Funny you should ask about him. We'll get to the rest of that later. Yes, yes. Um, okay, let's move on to our next slide here. Um, this is after, so I guess before we talk about this, we should probably talk about the... Uh, the poem, Frodo is called upon to say a few words and does and stumbles all the while holding the ring in his hand still in his pocket. And we get one of these moments when the ring begins to exert its influence, how easy it would be to disappear, how easy it would be to vanish. And we might speculate that the ring is leveraging some sense of the Black Rider's presence here in Bree, their influence at least here in Bree. 
and therefore tempting Frodo to expose himself to the Black Riders. So Frodo says his short little speech, which is not terribly impressive, and then sings his, his ridiculous song. This is a mashing up of uh, Hey Diddle Diddle and The Man in the Moon Came Down Too Soon. And ordinarily, as I have previously, I would pull slides for the song and we would analyze the song. And there is a school of thought here <laughs> that suggests that this, this fairly foolish and ridiculous song is somehow connected at the deepest thematic level with the story of Arda, with the story of Middle-earth. We can draw some connections between, you know, the, the trees of Valinor and, and this song, but it's, it's just not that strong, I think. The reason that the song is included is that uh, Tolkien wrote it and published it many, many years earlier. I think in, uh, I don't actually have the date here, but I'm pretty certain it was in 1927, somewhere around there. So very early in his career, let me get rid of that slide too, uh, Tolkien had published this, or, or published a version of this song that he then readapted. He just wanted it included, I think. I've struggled through the years to really try to distill any significance from the song and we might draw connections you know the presence of the moon in middle earth is very important but really i'm also somewhat bothered by the nursery rhyme connotations of the song and the degree to which it feels anachronistic even though it isn't maybe strictly anachronistic i'm just not terribly uh terribly responsive to this song i have to confess but the most important thing happens afterwards anyway which is frodo tumbling off the table slipping on the ring vanishing out of sight and then coming to his senses um and this is the scene that we get with strider frodo felt a fool not knowing what else to do he crawled away under the tables to the dark corner by strider who sat unmoved giving a sign of his thoughts frodo leaned back against the wall and took off the ring how it came to be on his finger he could not tell he could only suppose that he had been handling it in his pocket while he sang and that somehow it had slipped on when he stuck out his hand with a jerk to save his fall. For a moment, he wondered if the ring itself had not played him a trick. Perhaps it had tried to reveal itself in response to some wish or command that was felt in the room. He did not like the looks of the men that had gone out. Well, said Strider when he reappeared, why did you do that? Worse than anything your friends could have said. You've put your foot in it, or should I say your finger? I don't know what you mean, said Frodo, annoyed and alarmed. Oh, yes, you do, answered Strider, but we had better wait until the uproar has died down. Then, if you please, Mr. Baggins, I should like a quiet word with you. The moment at which Strider's knowledge of Frodo, of the ring, of his true identity, is revealed. Shane says, the song is so much fun, it's so hard not to sing it with music. I will say, yes, the, the song is, you know, fun and raucous and, and very hobbitish. It's not that it is a bad song, it's just that it's placed in the narrative. Perhaps doesn't quite earn itself, if that can be said. Um, <laughs> Jackie says, I wonder if Aragorn witnesses this spectacle with the song and thinks, yep, definitely Bilbo's nephew. Yes, it's entirely possible that it is the song that confirms Frodo's identity, more so even than the putting on of the ring. Yes. Um, so here we know now that Strider is significant, and that concludes the chapter, a very short chapter, chapter nine. Then we move into chapter 10, and we get Strider's story. Go on then, said Frodo. What do you know? This is, before I read this slide, for those of you who are not following along in the text, this is after they have retired to their private room. So they are out of the bar now. They are secluded and can talk more freely. Go on then, said Frodo. What do you know? Too much. Too many dark things, said Strider grimly. But as for your business... He got up and went to the door, opened it quickly and looked out. Then he shut it quietly and sat down again. I have quick ears, he went on, lowering his voice. 
Though I cannot disappear, I have hunted many wild and wary things, and I can usually avoid being seen if I wish. Now, I was behind the hedge this evening on the road west of Bree when four hobbits came out of the downlands. I need not repeat all that they said to old Bombadil or to one another, but one thing interested me. Please remember, said one of them, that the name Baggins must not be mentioned. I am Mr. Underhill if any name must be given. That interested me so much that I followed them here. I slipped over the gate just behind them. Maybe Mr. Baggins has an honest reason for leaving his name behind, but if so, I should advise him and his friends to be more careful. I don't see what interest my name has for anyone in Bree, said Frodo angrily, and I still have to learn why it interests you. Mr. Strider may have an honest reason for spying and eavesdropping, but if so, I should advise him to explain it. Well answered, said Strider, laughing, but the explanation is simple. I was looking for a hobbit called Frodo Baggins. I wanted to find him quickly. I had learned that he was carrying out of the Shire, well, a secret that concerned me and my friends. Now don't mistake me, he cried as as Frodo rose from his seat and Sam jumped up with a scowl. I shall take more care of the secret than you do, and care is needed. He leaned forward and looked at them. Watch every shadow, he said in a low voice. Black horsemen have passed through Bree. On Monday, one came down the Greenway, they say, and another appeared later, coming up the Greenway from the south. The Black Riders are abroad. They are here in Bree. Strider knows all. And there are a couple of things that we can pull from this that that already begin to suggest the magnitude of Strider's skill and the magnitude of Strider's importance. We have no hint in the prose that he is eavesdropping on their conversation with Tom Bombadil. He was just nearby, but silent, as hobbits can also be silent. And remember, when we talked about the hobbitish ability to move silently in the natural world, we drew the connection between that ability and a fundamental compatibility with the natural world. Hobbits are of the natural world, which is why they move slowly. Big people are not, which is why they move clumsily. Tom Bombadil is an interesting contrast here. He seems to move carelessly and noisily because he doesn't care to move silently and stealthily. But Aragorn can move silently. And that, I I mean, not just silently by our standards, but so silently that hobbits are unaware of his presence. And we can question whether Tom Bombadil was unaware of his presence. It seems intuitively unlikely that that could be the case, given Tom's odd knowledge of things that he should not know. But at the same time, Tom doesn't care that much. Remember, Tom didn't hear Frodo's cries for help. He just happened to be passing by Old Man Willow with his water lilies and stumbled into the rescue. Chance, if chance you call it. So uh, we should say too, it is clear from the use of Old Bombadil that Strider knows Tom Bombadil. And that alone suggests that this mysterious weather-beaten ranger is a significant figure in the narrative. I love, too, Frodo's response. Here we see Frodo drawing his dignity around him, standing as proud and tall as a hobbit possibly can. I don't see what interest my name has for anyone in Bree, and I still have to learn why it interests you. Mr. Strider may have an honest reason for spying and eavesdropping, but if so, I should advise him to explain it. Casting Strider's words back at him is just a great moment. This is a moment of outright bravery and and, and valor from Frodo here. And Strider responds. He, he sees that, he understands it, and he laughs. Well answered, but the explanation is simple. I was looking for a hobbit named, uh, called Frodo Baggins. Strider is already aware of Frodo, was presumably already tracking Frodo. It is very good fortune indeed that he should happen to overhear the conversation with Tom Bombadil and then follow the hobbits into Bree, presumably vaulting over the gate athletically. Just, you know, the hobbits are still bound by civility, 
Actually, I think that is maybe a bigger point. I, I, I was going to make light of that, but I think that maybe is a bigger point than, than my levity would suggest. The hobbits stop at the gate and they talk with the guard and they do offer their names. They kind of offer something approaching an explanation and then their permitted entrance. But Strider is not concerned about gates or about where he's going or about you know the rules of polite society. He will just clear the gate and go on in because he is an outsider. Remember when we talked about the hedge and the cutting below the hedge, that the hedge is the block against the natural world, but the cutting below and the iron gate that permits entrance into the old forest, that is a barrier against people. That is a barrier against creatures, against foes, against enemies. It almost feels the same here in Brie. The gate is not a bar against the natural world because you wouldn't need a bar against the natural world here in Brie, but it is a bar against enemies and, and foes. You know, the fact that Brie is gated, there's never a suggestion, by the way, that Hobbiton is gated or, or any of the other places really that we get. I mean, the, the cutting under the hedge is less a means of protecting, you know, Buckland from the contents of the Old Forest than it is, as Mary says. We have a secret entrance into the Old Forest. I mean, it's gated, so it's safe, but this is how we move back and forth. This is for us. And it doesn't really feel that way. Brie is more vulnerable, and this is part of that contrast that I was suggesting earlier, that Brie occupies an intermediate phase between the safety of the Shire and the accessibility, the grandeur, the openness, the 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 outward facing view of other cultures and communities, which we'll get to later. Yeah. Um, Jackie says, Frodo's conversations with Strider and Gilder are so good. He's a quick wit in the beginning. Yes. Before the world beats that out of him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Shane, our favorite, Shane says, our favorite eavesdropper, Sam, is just happy to have a beer at this point. Yeah. You can just imagine Sam. Uh, I still have to learn why it interests you. Mr. Strider may have an honest reason for spying and eavesdropping. Sam turns away and takes a sip. Yes, definitely, definitely. More importantly, though, Black Riders are abroad. Black Riders are in and around Bree and have been for some time. They, too, are searching for Frodo. This is going to be very significant. Let's push on to our next slide as we learn a little more about the Black Riders. I know. I knew these horsemen were pursuing me, but now at any rate, they seem to have missed me to have gone away. You must not count on that, said Strider sharply. They will return, and more are coming. There are others. I know their number. I know these riders. He paused, and his eyes were cold and hard. And there are some folk in Bree who are not to be trusted, he went on. Bill Fernie, for instance. He has an evil name in the Breeland, and queer folk call it his house. You must have noticed him among the company, a swarthy, sneering fellow. He was very close with one of the southern strangers, and they slipped out together just after your accident. Not all those southerners mean well. And as for Fernie, he would sell anything to anybody or make mischief for amusement. What will Fernie sell? And what has my accident got to do with him? said Frodo, still determined not to understand Strider's hints. News of you, of course, answered Strider. An account of your performance would be very interesting to certain people. After that, they would hardly need to be told your real name. It seems to me only too likely that they will hear of it before this night is over. Is that enough? You can do as you like about my reward. Take me as a guide or not. But I may say that I know all the lands between the Shire and the Misty Mountains, for I have wandered over them for many years. I am older than I look. I might prove useful. You will have to leave the open road after tonight, for the horsemen will watch it night and day. You may escape from Bree and be allowed to go forward while the sun is up, but you won't go far. They will come on you in the wild, in some dark place where there is no help. Do you wish them to find you? They are terrible. We talked a little about 
how seriously we take the black writers. Frodo has a sense of them, but then Frodo has been closer to them than the other hobbits. But here, Strider is clear. Strider is defiant. No, no. The black riders are terrible. The black riders are dangerous. They are not something that can be overcome. They are not something that can be easily or straightforwardly eluded. They are a major force and a major threat. But here, too, we get an echo of Gandalf's discussions back in chapter two. The enemy has spies. And at the time, it may be that he was thinking, too, of Sam Gamgee, if he had become aware of the conspiracy that would later be unmasked. But certainly at that point, he is aware of Southerners here in the Breland, and possibly even venturing west toward the Shire. The Black Riders are not the only ones who are searching for Frodo. There are other agents of the enemy here, and some are presumably actual agents of the enemy, and some are simply men like Bill Fernie, men of bad name. Bill Fernie would sell anything to anybody or make mischief for amusement. He's a rotten sort, it turns out. So Frodo is now vulnerable even here in Bree. Strider tells him that he can leave tomorrow under the sun, but he can't go far, that he will need to leave the road and that he knows that land. His price, his reward for sharing this information is to accompany them. And as I say, we get this beat here. Uh, I have wandered over them for many years. I am older than I look, significantly older. Though it's not at all clear how old Frodo would expect Strider to be. I don't know if Frodo has any sense of the usual age range of the big people. I don't know if Frodo has any understanding because even by Hobbit terms, 87 is advanced. I mean, he would be well into his late middle age, even if, if not older by Hobbit standards, but by the standards of dwarves, 87 is perfectly respectable. By the standards of elves, he's basically an infant. He's a babe in arms at this point. But 87 for a man for one of the big people is significant, but it speaks to Strider's long experience between the Shire and the Misty Mountains, and as we will later learn, as we will later learn, excuse me, far, far beyond. This is uh, a crucial turning point for Frodo in his adventure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, we're playing a game here in the YouTube chat. I missed the first part of it. Yeah, as Jackie says, I'm older than I look. That's no joke. That guy's the worst, says Princess Elstrich, <laughs> referring to Bill Fernie. Yes. Finally, says Jackie, more about the Black Riders, and it only took eight chapters. Yeah. Oh, uh, Jordan has joined us. Thank you, Jordan, for showing up. It's good to have you with us. Yes, yes. Um, that we're playing here in the YouTube chat is Bill Fernie or Ted Sandyman who's the worst? Uh, Jackie's of the opinion that Bill wins that one. I don't know that we know enough about, uh, I don't know that we know enough about, about Bill Fernie to be sure about that. We do know quite a bit about ten, uh, Ted Sandeman. We'll revisit that question right at the end of the book. How about that? Shane also suggests round two, best horse, Bill or Fatty Lumpkin? Fatty Lumpkin is the greatest of all horses. I think we're, uh, okay, greatest of all horses is going to be Shadowfax, but ponies, I think Fatty Lumpkin's probably the best. Yeah. Alan says that when Strider says they are terrible, they must really be terrifying. Yes, yes, good. All right, good. Um, so this is our, our, you know, refocusing here on the Black Riders. No, they are not a general threat. They are not going to be just, you know, a shadow in the distance as you move forward on your quest. They are here. They are here now. This is very, very bad indeed. But then we get a brilliant intervention from one Samwise Gamgee. 
There was a heavy silence. Frodo made no answer. His mind was confused with doubt and fear. Sam frowned and looked at his master, and at last he broke out. With your leave, Master Frodo, I say... Excuse me, that's not Sam's voice. With your leave, Master Frodo, I say no. This strider here, he warns and he says, take care, and I say yes to that, and let's begin with him. He comes out of the wild, and I've never, and I've heard no good of such folk. He knows something, that's plain, and more than I like, but it's no reason we should let him go leading us out into some dark place, far from help, as he puts it. Pippin fidgeted and looked uncomfortable. Strider did not reply to Sam, but turned his keen eyes on Frodo. Frodo caught his glance and looked away. No, he said slowly. I don't agree. I think, I think you are not really as you choose to look. You began to talk to me like the Bree folk, but your voice has changed. Still, Sam seems right in this. I don't see why you would warn us to take care and yet ask, and yet ask us to take you on trust. Why the disguise? Who are you? What do you really know about, about my business? And how do you know it? The lesson in caution has been well learned, said Strider with a grim smile. But caution is one thing and wavering is another. You will never get to Rivendell now on your own and to trust me is your only chance. You must make up your mind. I will answer some of your questions, if that will help you to do so. But why should you believe my story if you do not trust me already? Still, here it is. At that moment, there came a knock on the door. Mr. Butterbur had arrived with candles, and behind him was Nob with cans of hot water. Strider withdrew into a dark corner. The interaction here, again, between Sam and Frodo is perfect, is beautifully, beautifully judged. And it speaks again to this social distinction. And, and we can tell explicitly that it speaks to the social distinction by two words in this passage. Pippin fidgeted. Pippin fidgeted and looked uncomfortable. This is a confrontation that is not in any way genteel. This is a confrontation that is not courteous. This is not how gentle hobbits behave, you guys. This is not really how any hobbits behave. An outright accusation of this sort, this would not have come from Frodo or from Mary or from Pippin, but it can come from Sam because he is not bound by the same expectations of gentility and of courtesy. And Sam makes an excellent point. This strider here, he warns and he says, take care, and I say yes to that, and let's begin with him. He comes out of the wild, and I never heard no good of such folk. Which is an interesting thing for Sam to say. He comes out of the wild, and I never heard no good of such folk. Well, not really. I mean, he didn't really come out of the wild, at least as far as Sam knows. He's been from the Shire to the Misty Mountains, but those lands are not the wild capital W. The wild capital W is the land east of the Misty Mountains. We don't know literally that this is true of Strider yet. Sam, at least, doesn't know literally that this is true of Strider yet. And what tales has Sam been told of people coming out of the wild anyway? Even if he just means itinerant folk who wander in the north, even if he just means rangers, even if it's just what he's heard in the bar tonight, what does Sam know? Because presumably, the greatest source of stories of the men of the wild that Sam has ever heard, would uh, the source there would have been Bilbo. Those are the stories that Sam is presumably referring to. Hobbits, other than Bilbo, don't really tell stories of the wild. They certainly don't tell stories of the men of the wild. So to what exactly is Sam referring? Well, we just can't be sure. We don't know what legends Sam has, has heard. We don't know what tales have made their way, bastardized and adulterated into the Shire. And we don't know what Sam has heard in the bar this evening. This seems like a more functional response from Sam. He's, he's creating an argument here in order to oppose Strider because of very good reasons. He, he's distrustful of this guy who knows so much about their business and is seeking to protect Frodo. But Frodo doesn't get that same luxury. 
He doesn't get to be naturally suspicious. He has to think it through and he has to lead. No, he said slowly. I don't agree. I think, I think you are not really as you choose to look. He's seeing through the facade that Strider presents and is again demonstrating a, a surprising, perhaps, acuity and intelligence here. This is good Frodo. Frodo is doing the right thing. Karen says here in the YouTube chat, Sam's going to do this kind of useful plain speaking throughout the books. That's absolutely true. But more often than not, Sam's going to be wrong. And that's vital because it gives us this great perspective on Frodo and the fact that Frodo's gentility, Frodo's social superiority, at least within the frame of the Shire, is actually well-earned. And we talked about this all the way back at the end of The Hobbit, and we've had echoes of it ever since. Bilbo demonstrated throughout the last movement of The Hobbit the kind of grandeur, the kind of charity and grace that we have explicitly associated with kings. And Bilbo is not, by any measure, a king, but he is kind of of noble blood. He is of a great family, so he should embody those same virtues. And here we see Frodo following in his uncle's footsteps, exhibiting exactly those same virtues again. Pippin is made uncomfortable by the conflict. He's made uncomfortable by the direct crossing of class lines here. We don't know anything about Strider. There's nothing to suggest that he is in any way a nobleman, except he has that way about him. He has that air. Had Sam stood up and confronted Harry at the gate, had Sam stood up and confronted Bill Fernie, would Pippin have been uncomfortable? Well, maybe a little, because conflict generally makes gentle hobbits uncomfortable. They're, they're unaccustomed to outright conflict, but I don't think he would have felt the same way. One of the things that I think this, this passage introduces is this very quiet and subtle sense of Strider's fundamental nobility. And this is emphasized when, when Frodo says, uh, I think you are not really as you choose to look. You began to talk to me like the Bree folk, but your voice has changed. In what way has his voice changed? What has it changed into? And how is that any more recognizable to Frodo than the language of the Bree folk? It has changed, but that's not an indicator that, that Strider is any more trustworthy than he seems to be. It may, in fact, be an indicator that he is less trustworthy than it seems to be, except that nobility shines through, that nobility is true and is exemplified here by Aragorn. Yeah. Oh, Karen says, Sam is right in a lot of the Boromir interactions. We can test that when we get to the two towers. No, no, no. Sam is right very often. But, well, hmm. is Sam more right or more wrong? I'm going to have to argue, I think, that Sam is probably more wrong. I think that Sam is generally put in this kind of plain speaking and justifiable role. You know, we understand why he's confronting Strider here. It's, it's the right thing to do to confront Strider, but he's not right and I think that's the role that Sam is going to end up in most often when he is forced into these interactions that allow Frodo to assume a kind of a more natural leadership role. We will definitely keep track of that as we go forward, though. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, keep moving forward here because we're going to, um, we're going to find unexpected heroism you guys, and, and heroism of an unexpected sort is always a joy in the pages of Tolkien. This is why we love Sam Gamgee to the degree that we love Sam Gamgee. But we also get another hero in this scene, and that hero is Barleyman Butterbur. I'm sorry I can't explain it all, answered Frodo. I am tired and very worried, and it's a long tale. But if you mean to help me, I ought to warn you that you will be in danger for as long as I am in your house. These black riders, I am not sure, but I think, I fear, 
They come from, they come from Mordor, said Strider in a low voice. From Mordor, Barlaman, if that means anything to you. Save us, cried Mr. Barlaman, turning pale. The name evidently was known to him. That is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time. It is, said Frodo. Are you still willing to help me? I am, said Mr. Butterbur, more than ever, though I don't know what the likes of me can do against, against, he faltered. Against the shadow in the east, said Strider quietly. Not much, Barlaman, but every little helps. You can let Mr. Underhill stay here tonight as Mr. Underhill, and you can forget the name of Baggins till he is far away. I'll do that, said Butterbur. But they'll find out he's here without help from me, I'm afraid. It's a pity Mr. Baggins drew attention to himself this evening to say no more. The story of Mr. B- the story of that Mr. Bilbo's going off has been heard through before tonight in Bree. Even our knob has been doing some guessing in his slow pate, and there are others in Bree quicker on the uptake than he is. Well, we can only hope the writers won't come back yet, said Frodo. I hope not indeed, said Butterbur. But spooks or no, no spooks, they won't get in the... Pony so easy, don't you worry till the morning. Noble say no word. No black man shall pass, shall pass my doors while I can stand on my legs. Me and my folk will keep watch tonight. You had best get some sleep if you can. Mordor is a name that is known even to the hobbits in the Shire. And it is a name of fell aspect, even to the hobbits in the Shire. And it is more well known and even more fearful here in Bree. And when it is said to Butterbur, they come from Mordor, said Strider in a low voice. From Mordor, Barlaman, if that means anything to you. And Barlaman there, using his first name as a means of establishing intimacy. From Mordor, Barlaman, if that means anything to you. Save us, is the immediate response. This cry of alarm, this cry of fear, he turns pale. That is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time. And Frodo says, dude, I know, right? It's pretty bad. Are you still willing to help me? To which Butterbur replies, I am. Instantly. No hesitation. No faltering. No stumbling. I am, said Mr. Butterbur, more than ever. Though I don't know what the likes of me can do against, against. And then he falters. I don't know what I can do, but yes, I will help you. Yes, Mordor. Yes, the shadow in the east. Yes, this is the worst thing that has happened in my lifetime. It is literally the worst thing that has happened in a thousand years. But yes, I will help you. I will stand with my man and we will protect the pony through the night. Don't you worry about these black riders. We've got this. And of course they don't, but this isn't jovial in the way that when we were back uh, immediately after our baths, uh, uh, when the, uh, when the conspiracy was revealed, there's that line about how long Buckland can withstand a direct assault from the black riders. And the answer is, I don't think they can withstand it for long, which is almost a joke almost a joke in the narrative, but there's none of that here. This is so much more powerful, so much more immediate, and Barlaman Butterbur proves his heroism immediately, and his wisdom. He is not quite the bumbling, slightly oafish figure that we saw earlier. Yes, his memory perhaps isn't great, but he is acute. He is perceptive, They'll find out he's here without help from me, I'm afraid. It's a pity Mr. Baggins drew attention to himself this evening to say no more. The story of that Mr. Bilbo's going off has been heard before tonight in Bree. Even our knob has been doing some guessing in his slow pate. And there are others in Bree quicker in the uptake than he is. Pate there, by the way, I don't know if that's uh, a word that is used in American English. It it simply means head. It it just means, um, yes. Um, Let's see here. Uh, We're talking in the YouTube chat. 
Uh, is there a modern equivalent to Mordor, says Jackie Boatman? Like, if we heard news of Mordor, we'd freak. Princess Ostrich suggests Chernobyl, which is an interesting one. Rachel was about to say the USSR. That's fascinating. Um, I suppose to contemporary American culture, perhaps the greatest threat would be North Korea, perhaps? But no, I don't think. I think the point of comparison would be Nazi Germany. I think that would be the direct point of comparison. If today in the diner on the corner of your street, you were relaxing and having a cup of coffee and someone comes in and says, ah, uh, the shadow has arisen in the East. Nazi Germany's back. Hitler's back. I feel as though that would be something approaching the right magnitude, but, and, and I know, of course, immediately going to Nazis and going to, going to Hitler means that I lose every argument on the internet. I get that. But that, I think, is probably the closest analogy to, to or perhaps not even that, because it would, be, it would be so very, so very dimmed by time. Perhaps Hitler is actually a, a bad point of reference because we have modern records that confirm his existence. Perhaps it would be, you know, Genghis Khan, has returned and is, is leading the Huns across Central Asia. I mean, perhaps, I don't know for sure. Yeah, yeah. North Korea would be more of a Saruman, says Princess Ostrich. <laughs> good pull, good pull. All right. Um, so really, I pulled that slide just because I want to talk about the epic heroism of Barlaman Butterbur. He is a good, good man. And for those of you who may have forgotten, of course, when we read The Quest of Erebor, when we read the account of the events of The Hobbit as seen from Gandalf's perspective, we've heard of The Prancing Pony before. We know the Prancing Pony because this is where Gandalf and Thorin met. This is where they conceived of the quest of Erebor itself. So that's a, a vital little point of intersection there. Just one of these crossover opportunities in the deep, deep history of Middle-earth. All right, I have only 10 minutes left and we have a few slides to get to. So let's do it. We begin, though, with Gandalf's letter to Frodo. Dear Frodo, Bad news has reached me here. I must go off at once. You had better leave Bag End soon and get out of the Shire before the end of July at latest. I will return as soon as I can, and I will follow you if I find you are gone. Leave a message for me here if you pass through Bree. You can trust the landlord, Butterbur. You may meet a friend of mine on the road, a man, lean, dark, tall, by some called Strider. He knows our business and will help you. Make for Rivendell. There I hope we may meet again. If I do not come, Elrond will advise you. Yours in haste, Gandalf. P.S. Do not use it again, not for any reason whatever. Do not travel by night. P.P.S. Make sure that it is the real Strider. There are strange men on the roads. His true name is Aragorn. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed, sh renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. PBPS, I hope Butterbur sends this promptly. A worthy man, but his memory is like a lumber room. Thing, thing wanted, always buried. If he forgets, I shall roast him. Farewell. Gandalf's letter is pretty great, you guys. I kind of just want emails from Gandalf. Just, just giving this, this weird... Uh, this weird combination of threat and danger and foreboding and instruction and injunction and also fairly faintly whimsical tone. P.S. P.P.S. P.P.P.S. That's, it, it's faintly silly and it reminds me of the Gandalf that we got right at the beginning of The Hobbit. We haven't really seen this Gandalf in the frame of The Lord of the Rings. It is almost whimsical and certainly very hobbitish. It feels 
absolutely like a piece of correspondence that would be sent from one hobbit to another. Not in content, but in tone and in style. I love, too, that we can pull, we can sense the haste in Gandalf as he's writing this, the way that the grammar is slightly fragmentary. We also need to focus here on the way that certain words are capitalized. We get, of course, all the proper nouns are capitalized, but there are a few others. Man is interesting because, okay, the race of men, a man, a big person, okay, we can capitalize that. That's, that's interesting. But he seems to be saying more than a human being, more than one of the big people. He's saying a man. And when we learn later about Aragorn's true lineage, that makes a lot of sense. That feels accurate and, and true. But he also capitalizes the R in road, which is fascinating. You may meet a friend of mine on the road. He's not talking about the road specifically. He's not talking about the Greenway or the road east. Rather, he's talking about the journey. He's talking about the, the road that goes ever on and on, as it were. He also capitalizes the I in it, in that first postscript. Do not use it again, not for any reason whatever. Do not travel by night. So when Gandalf records this letter, when he, he writes this letter for Frodo with the intent that it be sent to the Shire, this is an urgent injunction. Get out of town. Things have gone south. You are in trouble. Move and move now. When he writes this, he already knows about the Black Riders. He already knows that they are present. Presumably, do not travel by night would be a warning against the Black Riders. Yeah. Um, Jackie says, great way to avoid writing the ring. No, that's very good. And Lynn calls out here, yours in haste. But wait, let me add a little more, including a brief poem. Can I just append a brief poem? It's fine. It's probably fine. I've told you everything important, right? Yeah. Good, good. Um, let's take a look then at the poem. And this is one of those things which is, uh, which has really exceeded, um, really exceeded Tolkien's kind of reputation as a writer. You will find all that is gold does not glitter, not all those, particularly not all those who wander are lost. You will find that everywhere. You will find that inscribed on, on, you know, pieces of driftwood in your local bed, bath and beyond. You will find that all over the place on, on Instagram or on, on Twitter avatars. The first line though, all that is gold does not glitter is an echo of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. All that glitters is not gold, which actually is kind of drawn from the Canterbury Tales in which Chaucer said, but all thing with, <laughs> trying to read Chaucer, here we go. But all thing which that shineth as the gold is not gold as that I have heard told. So this goes back all the way to the Canterbury Tales, this idea that, that you know, um, this idea that all that glitters is not gold, which is an injunction against believing in facades. But by inverting this, Tolkien points us toward the truth. Not all, all that is gold does not glitter. Aragorn here is gold. Aragorn here is important and is what he seems to be but he does not glitter. He does not wear the shiny facade. So by inverting Shakespeare's essence here, Tolkien makes a much deeper and much more interesting point. And this poem, of course, in case it isn't immediately clear, is about Strider, is about Aragorn. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The rangers are not wandering because they don't belong. The rangers are wandering because they are waiting, because they are, they are still conducting their purpose. The old that is strong does not wither. 
The fact that the kingdom of Arnor has fallen is a tragedy. Yes, absolutely. The displacement of these people, this is a tragedy. Yes, but the strength, the strength is still there. And pay close attention to the old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost because we are going to be talking about this, believe me, when we get to Rohan, when we get to Gondor, because this is one of the major themes. The inevitable slide into into decline, at least the, the, uh, if I can, you know, kind of conflate those two ideas rather rather crudely and, and inelegantly there, the slow, tragic decline, the passing into memory is one of the primary themes of the Lord of the Rings, of, of Tolkien's entire body of work, of Tolkien's worldview. The golden age has passed and we are now less than we were. But Gandalf is specifically responding to that. He's offering a direct counterpoint to that. No, no. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. The strong endures. And that is antithetical to our perspective on so many things through the Lord of the Rings that it's it's almost, when I first understood the, the kind of broader implications of this point, I, I reeled. My mind was shaken by this because we're so accustomed in the Lord of the Rings to seeing declination. We get the tragedy of the elves, the slow passing into the west of the elves. We get the slow passing of the entire world. You know, the, the, the hobbits are not seen nowadays. Now with all this noise and less green in the world, the big people have driven the hobbits out. The world is less than it was. The old forest is less than it was. Fangorn is less than it was. Technology is rising and industry is rising and it's pushing back against truth and virtue. But the old that is strong does not wither. That's a powerful counterpoint here from Gandalf, a powerful statement of faith and of hope. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken. Pay close attention to that because we meet that blade in this chapter. The crownless again shall be king. These are words of prophecy, kind of, but they're also words of faith. They're words of intent. I've talked before about the curious absence of organized religion in The Lord of the Rings, that there are no churches, there are no temples, there are no prayers, there is effectively no worship in the realm of, of, of Middle-earth, in the frame of Arda, really. Um, and that that is fascinating, and I think has, depending on your perspective as you're looking at that issue, multiple interpretations. I think it, that is true and fascinating from an Elvish perspective for very clear and distinct reasons. They know Iluvatar and the Valar and, and the Maya. They know them. So they don't need to necessarily organize worship to kind of intermediate themselves between those, the, uh, to, to, to kind of, yeah, to, to stand between and to, uh, to mediate that relationship. They don't need to do that. Men and hobbits and dwarfs, this is, I, I can't do this because I actually have to wrap this thing up pretty soon. We'll talk about this another time. But the point that I was making was, this feels to me, as much like a prayer in the sense of hope and belief and faith as anything in the Lord of the Rings. I find it completely fascinating, completely compelling, and a beautiful, beautiful piece of poetry. And let me tell you, if you find yourselves in times of trouble, kind of murmuring this to yourself probably won't hurt. It probably won't hurt. In exactly the same way as Frodo next, uh, next, in next week's reading will yell out Albareth Gilthoniel. Yeah, sometimes these words can help. Um, Karen says, hey, I have a prophecy poem about the guy you're talking to. Yes, well, but of course, Gandalf doesn't know when he's writing the letter that they will actually be in the company of Strider 
when the letter is read. He says, hey, you might meet this guy on the road. If you do, you can trust him. His real name's Aragorn. By the way, let me give you a short verse that seems to be related. Yeah. Good. Okay. Jackie says, everyone needs a poem like this about their lives. Talk about purpose. You are not kidding. You are not kidding at all. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's, um, let's move on to another, another point of uh, suspicion from Sam here. Pippin subsided, but Sam was not daunted, and he still eyed Strider dubiously. How do we know that you're the Strider that Gandalf speaks about? He demanded. You never mentioned Gandalf till this letter came out. You might be play-acting a spy, for all I can see, trying to get us to go with you. You might have done in the real Strider and took his clothes. What have you to say to that? You are a stout fellow, answered Strider. But I am afraid my only answer to you, Sam Gamgee, is this. If I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you. And I should have killed you already without so much talk. If I was after the ring, I could have it. Now! He stood up and seemed suddenly to grow taller. In his eyes gleamed a light keen and commanding. Throwing back his cloak, he laid his hand on the hilt of a sword that, that had hung concealed by his side. They did not dare to move. Sam was wide-mouthed, staring at him dumbly. But I am the real Strider, fortunately, he said, looking down at them with a face softened by a sudden smile. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will. A great moment. A moment that echoes... Moments that we've seen previously, the sudden increase in stature, the sudden appearance of, of being larger than you are, or perhaps we might say instead of uncloaking yourself from, from a disguise, from, from a facade of mundanity and revealing your true grandeur. We've seen this before. We've seen Gandalf do it. We will see Gandalf do it again, let me say. But for Strider to do this here, to grow larger, to grow greater in magnitude is perfectly representative of the importance of his character, not within the narrative frame, but the importance of his capital C character. He is a great man, capital G, capital M. This is important. He is important. And here for a moment, he is unveiled. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will. Save you is interesting here. You remember back when we were talking about uh, talking about Gollum, talking about the decision to keep Gollum alive, and Gandalf gives these two different explanations for why it is that Gollum is still alive. He says, "I sense that he has a purpose, and I will not interfere with that. And also, there is not no hope that Gollum can be healed, that Gollum can be made whole, that Gollum can be restored." On the one hand, he has a great purpose, but on the other, there's a hope of redemption. I give you my logical, pragmatic answer, purpose, and I give you my human, empathetic answer, redemption. Aragorn here speaks of saving the hobbits, but not of destroying the ring. He clearly knows the quest. He understands why this quest is taking place, and he more than anyone understands its import. But the oath that he takes, the promise that he, and I say oath with a lowercase, oh, I suppose this is not a formal oath, but it is a promise. It is a statement of intent is to save the hobbits, not to fulfill their quest. This is emblematic, I think, of two things, which we will associate with Strider throughout the entire span of the book. The first is his empathy and his kindness and his concern with with people and and quiet tragedy, his concern with the actual individuals around him. He is not distracted by 
the grandeur of these events. He never loses sight of the actual people that he is accompanying and crucially serving because Aragorn is humble. He is a servant of his companions. He is a servant of his fellow man, fellow hobbits, fellow elves, fellow dwarves, etc., etc., etc. Aragorn is in this moment demonstrating a connection with humanity and a humility that are both virtuous. There is an interesting point that we must confront here. And we've done this a few times already. Let me show you the slide again, because we'll look at the relevant passage. Um, yes, Jackie says, save was changed to protect in the film, and it bummed me out. You are absolutely right, Jackie. Most of this is very good in the film, but that, uh, yes, that feels perilously close to missing the point, doesn't it? It feels perilously close to just getting the... the the actual semantic content of the line completely wrong, of moving in entirely the, the opposite direction. Look at that second paragraph on the slide, though, that you are a stout fellow, answered Strider. This is great, by the way. Sam is coming at Strider saying, look, we don't know you. We don't know you. You could have killed Strider, taken his clothes, and now you're trying to lead us out. What do you say to that? And Strider says, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that could be true. Hey, good job, Sam. You're smart. I love that Strider isn't offended by this. He's just, no, you're a stout fellow. But I'm afraid my only answer to you, Sam Gamgee, is this. My only answer, like I can offer you no assurance besides this. If I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you. And I should have killed you already without so much talk. If I was after the ring, I could have it now. We are going to see in the course of the Lord of the Rings, a number of people struggle with the desire for the ring. We have, in fact, already seen a number of people struggle with the desire for the ring. Even Gandalf, for a moment, is, well, if not tempted, at least afraid of that temptation. When Frodo offers the ring to Gandalf, he absolutely resists. He is almost panicked by it because the allure of the ring is so strong. Is this Aragorn's moment of temptation? Does he actually desire the ring here? He stood up and seemed suddenly to grow taller. In his eyes gleamed a light, keen and commanding. Throwing back his cloak, he laid his hand on the hilt of a sword that had hung concealed by his side. They did not dare to move. Sam was wide-mouthed, staring at him dumbly. In that moment, is Strider, is Aragorn demonstrating his true nature? Is he demonstrating to the hobbits who he really is? Or is he for a second under the thrall of the ring? Is he for a second considering actually taking it? What do you guys make of that? But I am the real strider, fortunately, he said, looking down at them with a face softened by a sudden smile. What is being softened here? Is it Aragorn's noble countenance? Is it, is it his heroic visage? Is it, his, you know, is it this stern kind of aspect of command within him? Or is it the actual and legitimate desire for the ring. What do you guys make of that? This part is awesome, says Alan, but I don't know how happy I'd be if someone said, I could kill you and take your stuff if I wanted. But, you know, be reassured by that because I haven't killed you and taken your stuff. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Alan. Yes, yes, good. Oh, Sarah says, I'm just curious why save is preferable to protect. Um, I think my feeling on this is that protect... Protect is functional and save is not. Protect speaks to Frodo's purpose. It speaks to his quest. Protect you implies that I will guard you while you do your thing. 
save does not. And save also speaks of sacrifice. Protect is ongoing and save is perhaps less ongoing. That to me is, is a clear distinction here. And save obviously also has aspects that go beyond the strictly physical, that, that, that you might protect someone and still allow them to, you know, I will watch your back, Frodo, while you sacrifice yourself. But save does not imply that in quite the same way. Save is, no, I, I'm going to save you. I'm going to, to keep you safe in the, you know, in the etymological roots of that word. I, I will keep you safe in, in a more general sense than in simply the physical. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on here. Uh, yes, Shane says, good point, because command seems to have a more domineering aspect that leads to this being a moment of temptation. Command is certainly one, yes, uh, in his eyes gleamed a light keen and commanding. That could just be his nobility, his Aragorn-ness coming out. But yes, command is important because the ring will elevate you. The ring will make you king. Emperor, Lord, the, the ring will make you powerful. And command is questionable. Command in the hands of those who are less than virtuous is the most dangerous thing. Even, in fact, that's not true. Command, power in the hands of those who are virtuous is the most dangerous thing. Because ultimately, everyone but the very strongest will succumb to corruption, succumb to temptation. That's true throughout Tolkien's writing. So, yeah, yeah. Um. Let's wrap this up here with our final slide as we plan for the future. And Mary has a question. What will happen? said Mary. Will they attack the inn? No, I think not, said Strider. They're not all here yet. And in any case, that is not their way. In dark and loneliness, they are strongest. They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people, not until they are desperate, not while all the long leagues of Eriador still lie before us. But their power is in terror, and already some in Bree are in their clutch. They will drive these wretches to some evil work, Fernie and some of the strangers and maybe the gatekeeper too. They had words with Harry at Westgate on Monday. I was watching them. He was white and shaking when they left him. We seem to have enemies all round, said Frodo. What are we to do? Stay here and do not go to your rooms. They are sure to have found out which those are. The Hobbit rooms have windows looking north and close to the ground. We will all remain together and bar this window and the door. But first, Nob and I will fetch your luggage. Our plan is made. We're going to stay here tonight because actually tonight we are safer here in the light, in the, the warmth and the comfort of the Prancing Pony. We are safer from the Black Riders than we would be if we simply ran. And that's not just a matter of logistics. There is a magic here about this place. In dark and loneliness, they are strongest. They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people, not until they are desperate. So here we get confirmation of two things about which we have speculated pretty much since the beginning of the book. Yes, there is a magic in the Shire. And the magic of the Shire is in light and in community. It is the, the, the society of hobbits that makes the Shire magical against the Nazgul, against the Black Riders. That is why they are less powerful there than they will be later in the book. That is why when they are out on the road, they seem that much more malevolent. But we also get confirmation of something else. Because they are restricted, because they will not take direct action against these bastions of light unless they are desperate, they will corrupt the locals. They have corrupted Bill Fernie, some of the strangers, maybe even Harry at the West Gate. That is absolutely consistent with what we see of the Black Riders back in the Shire. When they're talking with... They're talking with the gaffer. When they're talking with Farmer Maggot, we get exactly that kind of echo. But of course, the hobbits 
are even less likely to fall under the, the fear of the black writers than the men of Brie are. And the men of Brie arguably may be more powerful in this simple regard because of their community, because of their independence, because of their sense of identity and, and culture than other men that we will meet later. Yeah. Yes, as Jackie says in the YouTube chat, we get hints that he's faced the Nazgul before and understands their real awfulness. Yes. Oh, and Heroes and Bard says, I've always wondered how Aragorn came to be familiar with the behavior of the wraiths. Yes, the mythic aspect of the wraiths. Well, well, we'll definitely talk about that. Of course, Aragorn is descended of a line that fought the Witch King of Angmar, the, the leader of the ring wraiths in, in the war between... Um, between Angmar and Arnor, of course. <laughs> How did I not remember the name Angmar when I literally just said it five sentences ago? This is what happens. I'm good for 90 minutes in these live sessions, you guys. I go 10 minutes over and it all falls apart. This slide is still on the screen. Let me call up the next slide. Next session, a fellow, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. That will take place 9 p.m. Eastern, another evening session next week, Thursday, July the 6th, 2017. I hope that you will be able to join me for this. We have two more sessions here in the first book of the Fellowship of the Ring, and I am very much looking forward to the breaking point between book one and book two, though that is not to suggest that I'm not looking forward to chapters 11 and 12, because both of those are knockout chapters, chapters that will, in a very real sense, change the course of the narrative and define the shape of Frodo's experience for the rest of the book, for the rest of his lives. One thing drives out another, says Shane here in the YouTube chat. Very well put. I am more than a little, I think, Barlaman Butterbur. With that, though... I will bid you all good day. Thank you so much for joining me here. If you enjoy what I do here at Point North Media, then you can do two things to help. I mean, you can do many things to help. You can send me cookies. I guess you could do that thing. That's not really what I'm talking about. You can do two major things to help. The first is to tell a friend. The first is to share the word about, uh, to spread the word, I guess, about these podcasts. If you're interested in Tolkien, of course, there and back again. If you're interested in Neil Gaiman and American Gods, Storm's on the way. If you're interested in Harry Potter... Stay tuned, because within the next couple of weeks, I will have an announcement for the actual schedule for The Prisoner of Azkaban. It is almost Harry Potter season, you guys, so get your time turners ready. We'll be talking a lot about The Prisoner of Azkaban. And if you enjoy what I do here at Point North and you would like to contribute to its ongoing stability and success, patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, a dollar a month really helps. If I got one dollar a month from everyone who listens to There and Back Again, we would be financially secure and set forever. That would be just great. And I could begin to really expand the kind of work that we're doing. I have just recently revised all of the Patreon milestones over at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, moving away from promises of more shows because guys, let's be honest, more shows are going to happen anyway. I love podcasting. I am always going to make as many podcasts as I'm physically able to make. That's just the truth of it. So we're going to talk about The Princess Bride inevitably because I really want to. And I'm going to do some video game content at some point because I really want to. And I have new projects lined up all the time. So keeping those reserved as milestones felt a little disingenuous because I want to do them. Presumably you guys want to listen to them. That's fine. We're good. That, that, that the schedule is going to be full no matter what forever. Instead, I've made the milestones more transparent and more directly connected to my broadcast capability here. So the next milestone is going to involve possibly moving to a new broadcast platform that will allow for greater interactivity and a greater tool set and, and just more interactivity in these live sessions, better audio, better video, all of these things are coming down the line. So if you would like your experience of all the Point North podcasts to be improved, head on over patreon.com slash point north media i appreciate all of your support let's wrap this thing up thank you all so much it has been a pleasure i will talk to you all next week as we make our way to weathertop until then 
Take care.